Hello everybody and welcome to the NC podcast. My name is Natasha Collins and I am the host of NC Real Estate, which includes its members club for landlords and property investors to come and build profitable property portfolios, which completely align with their goals. Guys, if you haven't yet gone to my website, ncrealestate.co.uk and downloaded the master spreadsheet, that pops up the minute you get on the site, it's like right in your face the minute you get there, please go and do that so that you can organize your property portfolio. Number one, it's great for you because you can manage your property portfolio from wherever you are in the world. Number two, if you've then got questions about your property portfolio, you've got all of the information right there, rather than trying to ask questions on social media or wherever you are and not actually having the facts and figures of your property portfolio, which is the only way someone would be able to help you out. So make sure you get it, you actually use it, you fill it in, I send you additional resources to go with it, do that, ncrealestate.co.uk. Right, today, I am so excited to welcome Jake Notman onto the podcast. Jake is a property investor, developer, owner of Assets We Build, which includes its global acquisitions consultancy. And Jake is the host of the Best in Property podcast. Hi, Jake. How are you doing? I appreciate your time. I appreciate you having me on. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Not a problem at all. It's uh, an interesting time in the world we live in right now, but it's um, doing things like this, uh, it's, it's great and it's a um, good chat with similar people, similar minds like yourself. So no, anytime. Thank you very much. So let's jump straight into the questions because if if people haven't found you on social media yet, you're incredibly active. So guys... Ladies, gents, everybody listening, make sure that you go and find Jake Notman on social media. I'm going to put some links below. So firstly, your bread and butter is developments. Why does this strategy work for you? Well, developments, I mean, it's something that's fascinated me over the last, I guess, throughout my property career, really. I mean, I've always started my journey, if I take you back to why I got into property developments and I guess why I do it now is, I mean, for me, it was about passive income. And I think doing developments, it was always a case of, well, I started in sales, I started understanding how a transaction worked, the sort of really from basic stuff, all that led me to doing sort of your, your, sort of your basic refurbs. And then it led me all the way up to doing um, your developments, your apartments in the centre of Manchester and, and different parts of the UK. So what the reason why I do it, I guess it, it's one of the, I guess I always look at the ways you can make the most money in property. Um, and if you get it right, property development is one, definitely one of them. Um, and also what I quite liked was the levels that you can, oh, I guess, go with in property development. So you can start off with a small refurb, a flip, whatever it is. And then some of the clients and some of the, I guess, projects I aspire to do are four, five, six, seven, eight hundred units. So, and obviously the profits are slightly different. So I think for me, it was a case of I like stuff that you can progress in um, and development is something that you can certainly, once you get it right, and of course, you've got to walk before you can run. Um, you see a lot of developers going from a two up, two down refurb to building 600 units and um, yeah, it fascinates me the the level of different individuals and companies that you work with, and uh, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm a big believer in growth and progress, and I guess development allows me to do that. Mm-hmm. So when you're estimating the cost of a development, actually, hold up, what developments we've got going on at the moment? Let's talk about that first. <laughs> For sure. So at the moment, uh, we've got quite a lot of um, commercial to stuff. We've got a lot of um, I call it HMOs and projects in this sort of outside of Manchester, which we are going to be retain, retaining ourselves. Uh, typically, I mean, about 18 months ago, 12 months ago, we did 10 apartments in the centre of Manchester, which was great. Uh, we're in the pipeline of doing 26 units in, in Liverpool. Um, and then we had, yeah, just projects all around sort of Manchester and the surrounding areas. 
Uh, we're looking at the market at the moment. Do we want to come into the market right now with bill costs being quite high or with land values being quite high? Um, I think the market, I think with everything that's going on in the world right now, I think it's, I guess, a price reduction in some land values needs to, has needed to happen. Um, and I definitely think with, I guess, the world, the way it is at the moment, I think that will, well, should happen. Um, and I think that's when we're ready to go back into the market. So at the moment, we're sort of finalising projects and getting them over to, to, to completion, the ones that we're focusing on. And that, like I said, from 14-bed HMOs to smaller projects. But these are projects more I focus on myself and retain. Um, and then when we're looking at appraising, we're always appraising sites, whether it's 40, 50 units, co-living schemes, which is quite an interesting concept in the UK. Um, but yeah, it's, um, we're trying to get, I guess, with everything that's going on, get the projects that we've got going on completed um, and find the right opportunities with the not so ridiculous land prices. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, that's where we're up to at the moment. Okay, so when you're estimating costs for a development, what standards do you use? Do you estimate cost on a pound per square foot basis or do you have an idea of price for each unit or each room? How are you doing it? So it tends to be, I mean, we, it depends on the size of the project. If it's a smaller project, if we're doing like, I guess, the, the commercial to resi, the, the HMO style project where it's smaller, I guess, GDB less than 500k, um, that would be a case of we'd have a, bring in a contractor and they just give us a, a set figure. Um, it, doesn't necessarily tend to be on a price to square foot value. Um, when we do the large projects, for example, the ones in Manchester, the ones that we've appraised previously, that is definitely on a square foot value, um, price to square foot value, sorry. Because, well, you've just got to make sure where bill costs, you've got to make sure the figures are right. Because as we all know in property, if you don't get them right, then there's a lot of money to make property bill, but there's also a lot of money to lose. So I use various different tools from BCIS to, I always make sure I'm, I'm not, necessarily construction guy you know i'm a deal maker i look at I think relationship build but i always make sure that i'm bringing in the right professionals so i'd recommend to everyone make sure they're using the right qs firm building surveyors making sure i guess the experts know exactly what they're doing because i always make sure i guess if people are going to be on board a project they have to be part of the team um and they have to make sure that they understand the bill cost of what needs to be it needs to be priced at and I guess with land values and, and bill costs going up and tender prices going up as well, it's it's a situation which a lot of developers don't get right at the moment. Um, so definitely something which I always look at myself is BCIS, which is just, I guess, an online portal, which you can obviously look at various different schemes that have been built for certain prices within areas. Um, speaking to the surveyors, even speaking to contractors as well, uh, what they're going to build it for. But always be careful what contractors say. Never necessarily believe it every time. Um, because of, of course, the contractors can make an extra 10, 20, 30 pound a square foot. They certainly will do. Um, now, I guess when you've got sort of tight margins in the property development space anyway, and sometimes you've got to make sure that you're not only getting it from a contractor's point of view, but a QS, even architect. I mean, an architect, a good quality architect that has, I guess, done, um, I guess, feasibility studies for, for many of the larger schemes. It's getting a good opinion of what works, what doesn't work. Um, I guess, making sure that you're not overpaying for something which, I guess could cost you a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at land, so you go out and find the development sites, is that right? Correct. Yeah. So we, so uh, we have an internal team, which is sort of like looks after acquisitions. So I primarily focus on sort of the relationship building with the vendors. Um, it can be, like I said, we don't really tend to get stock from like city local agents or anything like that. And uh, we try and get off market stock as everyone else tries to do. Um, but we try and get, especially on the sort of consultancy side of business, which is work with the institution. We try and, get schemes at the very early stages um, and the reason for that is because well just we there's more value to be made in, in the deal so I think it's allowing us to when you buy a site with planning for example I guess stops you from 
well, get the most money for the scheme uh, because a developer that's got a planning consent on a deal that has took the scheme through planning, they want to get a premium for that site. So ideally, my ideal scenario is to put the planning on ourselves. Um, yeah, it's just taking a financial risk, of course, uh, but there is much more value and there's much more money to be made if you can get a site from with no planning and take it through the process for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when you're talking to vendors what are you saying you're saying look how much what's the lowest price that you'd sell it to us for or what are you looking to get for it and then from there you estimate how much it's going to cost you to build before you get the architects in or do you have architects and quantity surveyors on a retainer who will do that for you quite quickly well it's a good question i think uh, i always make sure that the early stages i'll get a, an architect or uh, again it depends on the, on the project if it's a commercial terrazzi if it's a, a brand new build plot we've obviously got to look into what's going on in the local area as well what height we can get as well because certain areas for example parts of manchester parts of birmingham there's only certain i guess certain amount of storage you can get so my goal really with the vendor is it's got to be a win-win situation so of course, as a business, we've got to make money. The investors and the funders and the people that are all involved in the project, they've got to be happy. And the vendor has got to be happy too. So I think if I'm always honest and transparent, so like I said, I I put my between cars on the table, I'll exactly show them what the sales values are in that area, show them what the bill cost we've got it for. Um, I'll get that, I guess, opinions from contractors and QSs. And you know what vendors are like, they want to try and get as much as they can. Um, but the scheme's got to work. I mean, most developers will look at a scheme and they'll, near or nearabouts have the same build cost um and again similar sales values as well if you are looking to sell it of course and um, so it's just making sure that they, i guess the vendor's educated because a lot of them for example they'll, they'll see a scheme in manchester they've got maybe have a, an old industrial unit or whatever it is in an old commercial asset and they'll see 50 story tower and like yeah i want the most money for it but if you've got a high restriction that get to five or six stories then your land which could get 50 stories on it so but again it's again educating and making sure that we can present options to the vendor so i could obviously come in and just buy it on an unconditional basis and buy it subject to planning but i also maybe try and look at a jv as well so obviously if the vendor chucks the landing into the deal it means that i reduce my borrowing costs i reduce well i've de-risk it for me and the investors um, in the deal so that's again what i guess we try and look at but there is a risk again to the, the, the vendor of the site because they've got to wait for the, the schemes to be completed or they've got to get wait till it gets planning. Um, but I guess if you are dealing with a tricky vendor, see if they can chuck the land in. And we do, we're taking all the work, we're taking the financial risk, we've got to put it through planning, we've got to speak with the planning consultants and everyone like that. And it's, it's not an easy job, as you know. So yeah, I think education with vendors uh, and presenting good options as well and, and, and being honest with people. Um, of course, if you you've got to negotiate and you've got to try and get a good deal. It's, I'm not saying, saying like a, a charity, but I think it's almost, yeah, if we can get a good deal and if it's a, it's a no from the vendor, then we'll try and present the good option so everyone's happy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What are land values like at the moment around uh, Manchester? Oh, crazy. Absolutely crazy. Uh, I mean, when I was looking at, when I first started looking at sites in Manchester, I mean, we could pick up, I mean, we see it on a per plot basis. So it'd be like, say if you've got 100 units, it'd be 10 grand per plot, what it costs us to buy um the scheme really and now it's you can see some schemes and sites that are 40 50 60 grand a plot um now straight away if it's costing you 40 grand for that unit to buy just the land then you've got the build cost on top that just doesn't stack up and this is why you see a lot of sites or a lot of developers well messing up um because what they do is they try and squeeze they look at a great location the vendors obviously got negotiated them hard 
and then all of a sudden they can't achieve the sales values and then all of a sudden you've got a scheme which can't sell and then it just ends up in a tricky situation so to answer your question it's um i think a lot of developers if you speak to the developers across the i don't know what it's like in london at the moment we focus on manchester birmingham mm-hmm. and i think because those places have had a lot of attention from the overseas market and the growth and the hs2 and where manchester's gone people tend to think they can charge a high value but it's just not at that point yet um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you'll start you start to see a lot of developers now looking at alternative markets slightly outside of manchester places like stockport and salford and other areas which you can still get good good value for money um, but the center of manchester it's just ridiculous and don't be wrong there is some schemes that could stack up to those values but manchester's not london yet it's uh, it can't demand those prices i'm sure it'll get keep on growing over the next few years but it's just not at that point yet so it's a uh, it's an interesting one with with um with with like vendors and landowners for sure. Do you think then, reading between the lines, that this is why so many developments are going up with these guaranteed rent schemes, is so that they can sell the properties at a higher price and essentially go, okay, well, you buy it at fifty grand over where market value is, we'll guarantee you the rent, but actually guaranteeing you the rent and even topping up a couple like. 150 to 200 pound per calendar month is better for us to have your higher amount in our pocket than it is for us to just sell it at market value do you think that's what's happening for sure for sure and you'll see a lot of developers that will do that and you'll also see a lot of developers that have that but then can't guarantee the rent Uh, you look at places like liverpool which is a market which i love liverpool as a market um i would invest that myself but you've got a few developers i guess across the uk really not stereotype stereotype (laughs) making it out to be liverpool's like this bad place but You've had experiences like that where people will just build the guaranteed rent into the prices. I mean, you're getting these student apartments that are like £80,000 and it's, it's like it's a, a small cluster. It's like, where's that come from? Um, and yeah, you're definitely right. I think it's because it's that vicious cycle. They can't get a cheaper sales. The only way they can do it is obviously squeeze the prices. Then you've got obviously contractors looking to make their profit, high bill costs. So it's a, it's one big cycle. and it's You see so many developers now that I guess the fractional sales market for that will probably dry up quite for the next 18 months and you'll see a lot of developers looking to work with more institutions one transaction one buyer um i guess which de-risks it for the developer but also de-risks it in some way for the fund as well because they have a bit more control in the deal um but yeah it's uh when, st- when guaranteed deals start coming into the prices and it's just yeah 80 90 grand for a student a student room is just ridiculous sometimes mm-hmm. so yeah it's um it's an interesting one. You see a lot of schemes that just go wrong because of it. Uh, and it's like you said, you can get it built, but then you've got three, 400 investors that have been guaranteed a 10% for five years and then they don't get it. So then they don't get any rent. Um, mm-hmm. So yes, yeah, it's, it's crazy times. Mm-hmm. Because then the developer can just declare bankruptcy and disappear. Then you disappear. put a flat with no management, no maintenance. <laughs> like, and there's no, re- no resale value either. No? Um, especially, I mean, don't be wrong, Resi is a bit easier to obviously for the resale market, but because you bought it at such a high price with a guaranteed yield, it's crazy. And you look at student, if you're if you're buying in Liverpool or in any of these markets and you're spending way over the odds for a student pot, you're not going to be able to sell anywhere close to that when it comes to the reselling in five years. You've had students living in it for five years, it's the it's depreciated in value, and it's just I've had agencies from Kuwait and the Middle East and all around the world that they just will, won't, I mean, we're talking specifically about student here, but they just won't sell like a student ever again because so many developers have promised these guaranteed deals and just never received a single penny. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the things in the property industry that I think over the next couple of years we are going to see coming up as a scam. 
and people really complaining that, hold on a minute, I bought mm-hmm. you guaranteed rental scheme and now I'm not getting these guaranteed rents. I owe too much on the mortgage. But also what I'm finding is that the developer will lend to the people on the um, to buy the property at these high amounts. So they're also collecting the interest. Crazy. It's honestly crazy. And it's these buyback clauses, buying it with a, with profit after five years and then, don't get me wrong I think especially I, I see it more from the Middle Eastern markets they love the guarantee they love the guarantee they're hands-off investment of course like everyone wants um, but now in like Hong Kong for example Hong Kong's a place which they do quite a lot of business um, they sell a lot of schemes over there through uh, exhibition seminars and, and that style of selling projects and a lot of student projects in Hong Kong I mean across they've got almost like an association like we've got an ombudsman in, in the uk mm-hmm. they've almost got like an association for uk developers and student property is just a no-go ever again for, for people in hong kong because they've had situations where they've been over promising and not being delivered on um, and it's a crazy time so i think you will see the market coming back to your traditional sort of buy to lets um obviously if people rather a few years ago was what was the guaranteed deal do what had the fanciest brochure how many furniture packs or what it was whatever it was but now is is it going to get built on time and is it going to get doing deliver a decent rental um so and that's the way the market is at the moment so it's it's changed uh but changed for a better reason of course yeah yeah definitely what would you have loved to have known before you got into developments oh like that question probably more construction to be fair um because i've always sort of realized what what am I good at in property doing? You, you get guys that have got a great eye for design. You've got guys that um, come from a contracts background, have done building or worked on sites, for example, have done a bit of experience in what they're doing. Whereas I was like, well, I've not, I've not really worked on a building site. I've not really done all these things. So I guess having that hands-on experience would allow me to understand it more. Of, well, yeah, just being able to, for example, when you work as a grown-up in, in the building world, you quote your own stuff. You're looking at understanding prices all the time. I think years of experience doing that allows you to, understand the guest bill costs more effectively um but saying that i've realized that i'm a i guess a, a fundraiser in many ways i can raise capital which is my part in the deal when i'm a developer um but yeah definitely understanding bill costs more and getting more hands-on um it's not to say i'm not a hands-on guy but i just ha- didn't work in that trade i sort of went straight into sort of business and working in an office so i definitely think understanding construction more is the, it's the key reason why a lot of people go wrong in property developments is not understanding bill costs mm-hmm. and whether that's doing a two up two two up two down in in Manchester or doing a hundred million pound GDP scheme or wherever it's bill cost is a massive thing. If you don't get it right, like I said, you can lose a lot of money. You go from making a profit to, to becoming in debt. So it's, uh, it's, yeah, definitely construction. But again, I say that I've, I've tried to, I've, I've got myself on a QS course last year, which was quite nice and mm-hmm. understanding dream from Ricks and understanding that like, I'm not going to be a QS, but I want to understand every single mentality understand as much knowledge as I can from everyone that's part of the team. Um, and QS is obviously a big part of that. So yeah, definitely construction. Why wouldn't you become a quantity surveyor? Um, why wouldn't I become a quantity surveyor? Nothing wrong with it. Um, <laughs> I just uh, nothing wrong with it at all. Um, I just I guess I'm. Well, I like to think I'm a sort of deal maker, negotiator. Yeah. So I probably I'd have too much pressure on the bill cost. I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd probably I'd probably crumble if someone said, "Oh, because obviously." A QS is what I see is one of the most important people in the team. Uh, they've got to deliver it within a budget, within a time frame. If they don't, 
well, the developer's got to pay extra interest. The developer's got all these issues. Mm-hmm. They've got to sign the contract. So the QS is very important. I think, uh, yeah, I just probably wouldn't like <laughs> that pressure as much. Okay. Put you yeah, on the spot there with that, with that question. <laughs> but the, you're that right. A, I mean, it's good. You're, you're good right question. with doing these, these courses. I say that to um, a lot of people. Go on the RICS website and look at the courses that they offer there as well. And the RICS at the moment have offered a lot at a discount just to get an understanding of the training that we as surveyors get. Like it's so it's so vast, and just having a little bit of that is just so vital for your understanding as a um, as a. It's crazy. Um, I've I've and what made me realise was when I was. Because obviously when you do, when you've got a project meeting, you've got the architect there, you've got surveyors, you've got whoever it is, you've got different consultants, you've got the, maybe the funders there, whoever it is. And I just, I don't like not having a clue about what people are talking about. I don't, don't, I don't want to, don't have to know everything about that, but I, I like to be tuned into a conversation where I can sort of follow it. Um, let obviously the, the professionals do what they need to do. But when I first started doing the projects, I was like, I didn't know whether that was a good bill cost or not. I didn't know whether I was getting screwed over. I didn't know whether, is that the actual price? Um, and because obviously contractors, they want to make a profit. The QS, they also want to make some money as well. Um, so yeah, I think for me, definitely was understanding, well, yeah, is this, well, is it, I, I wasn't going to sit there and say, oh, question them on it. It was more of a case of yeah, what knowledge I needed to learn and it allowed me to sort of level up in the experience. So yeah, I think also linked with institutions and overseas clients, I wanted to be able to, offer as much value as I can. I mean, I'm not going to, I can sit here and say why Manchester, the UK is a great investment. I can say all these types of things, but I want to be able to discuss bill costs. And that's the sort of stuff that when I'm speaking to an institution in Singapore, they've got the, I mean, people have gone to some of the best universities in the world. They understand all these things and I've got to have a conversation. I've got to not seem stupid. So if they're going to give me all their capital, I need to know at least as much the basics. Um, so yeah, that's, that's definitely recommend if anyone can learn about construction. But it's definitely one to learn if you want to get developments for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely. And especially because they do it so well. Gosh, the RICS. I'm plugging you here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. But the thing is as well, what I've realised with construction, and you know this yourself, it's yeah. bill costs are going up all the time, tender inflation. It's if you don't if you don't it's not to say you have to know everything, but if you don't keep on top of it, what's going on in the market what contractors are like i said bcis is a great tool you understand what people are sort of quoting or building things for so yeah it's just keeping on top of it and it's a massive part of it um like understanding a bit of the finance side of things you don't have to be the finance guy in it but you need to know if you're paying the right, right amount of interest mm-hmm. um and how to i guess financial structure the deal so yeah it's, it's interesting but i try not do try not get drawn into everything because I mean, I don't become, I become a jack of all trades then, but I think um, definitely being aware of what's going on is, is, is definitely important, sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how have you risk-proofed your portfolio since COVID? I know you've said that you've stopped really going out and looking for new sites and you're trying to finish your current sites, but with COVID and knowing that supplies are not what they used to be and work times are taking longer I certainly know that with the development so I have going on at the moment we now have to factor in for health and safety and in America it's different from in the UK that's for sure but how are you coping with that 
in terms of how we're coping, I think what I've realised is, especially, I mean, because the, the assets that we retain in-house, what I've realised is from if I'm going to rent it out privately, whether it's to students or whoever, whoever it is, professionals, I'm exposed in many ways uh, for developments in the projects that I can retain, um, especially once furlough ends in the UK. Who knows what's going to happen in, in the market? But what I've realised is that we've started to work with a lot of social housing providers, um, damage-proof cover, guaranteed rent. From, a, I guess, an entry, rental income point of view, that's something that we de-risk every time we afford it. It's something which we were progressively moving into. Um, but now it's something which any asset that I retain now would be definitely for, I guess, a government-backed uh, entity, social housing providers, because they've got the, they've got the rent in there. Um, in terms of from a construction point of view, I've tried to, I guess, not go all in at once. Um, it's trying to stay, take a step back and making sure that actually are we getting uh, the right bill cost there. I mean, a lot of builders and contractors that I've spoken to, they're now desperate for work. So mm -hmm. what they quoted me maybe a few months ago, could I get that slightly cheaper? Could I bring more money and value to the scheme, deliver more profits to the investors? So it's um, it's trying to sort of work it out from all angles. Right? It's not just a case of the developments and de-risking it. But I think as an investor retaining it, that's something which I definitely look at for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there are highs and lows in property. What's been your biggest high and your lowest low? Biggest high, probably. In, I was talking property or property developments or just property in general. In the built environment, everything uh, as a whole. Everything. Um, I probably I uh, nineteen twenty raised five million pounds from a Chinese investor. Um, so that was quite a cool thing um, that was for one of the projects that we were doing uh, in Manchester which was 38 apartments so that was again I've always because I see everything on a long term angle I remember business partners at the time and it's like saying why are you speaking to this person someone that works with Chinese clients and anyway I, every time I went down to London for meetings I'd always meet her nothing ever happened for 12-14 months and people want to people want to see who you are they want to trust you they, want to, they expect you to come to them um, and then all of a sudden, it was a lady called Jenny. She came to me and said, Jake, uh, I want to do some projects. Uh, I've got clients that are looking to spend this amount. And, and I think that's probably my biggest high, a sense of achievement. Uh, obviously, completing projects. But I think as something which I didn't think I could do at the time, but I believed in so much that I could do. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the conversation, it led to. And it, it was, the reason why it was great at high is because she even said, look, if you just see me once or twice, I probably wouldn't be talking to you again. But. You're persistent, you're consistent. And that's what I think a lot of people get wrong in property. No one's just going to, if you're coming into the industry as a young lad or young lady who with little experience at the time, if you're going to try and raise whatever lump of sort of money it is, it's you've got to make sure that someone trusts you and they're not going to mm -hmm. give you a single penny if they don't. Um, so that's probably a, a high. Um, I mean, there's sold schemes out of projects, but that's more of like a, well, just doing volumes of sales and stuff like that. But yeah, that's probably my, my biggest high. And then probably biggest low was, uh, I mean, I can tell you bits of it, but probably being screwed over probably by my business partners. Um, and again, that was for quite a lot of money. Um, so at, at sort of 21, that was on that particular scheme. Uh, so I bought the capital into that deal and then set to make great money. It's 38 apartments. Obviously, you know, figures yourself in that size of scheme. It's just, it's a nice scheme. And at 2021, it's wow, do you mean? one life here um, and then all of a sudden you realize that they were uh, signing documents fraudulently on my behalf and doing all these things which at the age of 2021 20, you don't really you didn't really expect you thought these business partners were were there for life and 
yeah, the high, you, you come across a 20, 25 grand legal bill at that point. It's like, if I hadn't made great money, um, well, yeah, it would have been a very, very tricky situation. So, yeah, that was um, that was an interesting one. But again, lessons learned, and you bring you get a lot more confidence from that. I knew, I know, my old business partners—they're not even in property anymore. So it's testament that I'm still trying to, mm-hmm. still trying to get there and uh, and build. So uh, yeah, that's probably your way. I've learned a lot of lessons, um, but it didn't stop me. So it's uh, yeah, that's uh, an interesting story for sure. Can I ask you then, how now do you vet your development partners to make sure that doesn't happen again? For sure. Well, I would, in terms of, I always, I wouldn't bring in a development partner uh, yeah. at this moment in time. So I would, I would bring in board members, sort of non-execs, people that I aspire to be like, or are sort of retired and I've done the game for many, many years. And um, I wouldn't bring in, well, it's not to say I wouldn't bring in, but I wouldn't, I'm not actively hunting for a partner. Um, I try and rather get QSs and contractors to, to, to become a team player, being part of the team. So if a QS is going to, for example, quote this figure to build it or contractor, well, if they're happy at that, then put your money where your mouth is and, and almost say, look, this is where we're going. This is what we want to build it at. This is the vision that we want to have. And it's not easy being a, a younger chap in the industry. and People want to try and obviously make money from you. But again, coming back to that, difficult time of being screwed over you learn so much about yourself and what i guess dd process and because you you become a bit more street smart in property you know i guess from speaking with other people who've dealt with them other contractors have they delivered on time um so yeah it's just i guess looking it's difficult sometimes looking to contractors financials um because they rely on sort of payments month to month sometimes so but yeah definitely getting a good lawyer um to look at as much as you can and just avoiding red flags if anything doesn't doesn't I guess seems a bit sketchy then it probably will be um and like I said when you're dealing with schemes that are GDV 10 million plus you've got to make sure that you don't take that risk uh, because reputation is everything uh, especially in the places overseas if you do one thing wrong it's not to say that you may even do it intentionally wrong and um, but at the end of the day the investors from Hong Kong aren't going to knock on the contractor's door they could be knocking on my door so it's kind of those things of and again, working with good people as well. Um, and I have to be working with people that understand the same vision, understand where they want to head. And I always say to people, look, we're not going to just do one project together. It's a case of let's do five or 10 projects. Let's see what we can do over five, 10 years. And you'll be able to quickly see how people sort of gauge what, what they say from that sort of conversation uh, as to whether I really want to work with them or not. So yeah, it's DD, a mix of legal, obviously DD, as well as just understanding what's going on in the market, what they delivered before. Uh, and speaking with people, having conversations like you would do when you're looking at about properties to speak to tenants in the local area, what's it like? You would do that with I mean, at this level as well. So, yeah, definitely suggest that for sure. Okay, good. That's really helpful advice because I think people will be looking at that and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, but we all get screwed over. I was, um, you know, there's there's always things that go wrong. I learned my lesson for putting um, our hoarding on scaffolding. So our signs, because we got our website got hacked because they found, they knew that we were working on high-end buildings and then they saw our hoarding, they hacked our email addresses and they were demanding money from that client that we had on the outside of building and they paid them. We lost so much money from that. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you've got to go, you got, you got to go, you got to go through those lessons and I think it's, I mean, of course, they always say in business and entrepreneurship, it's how many times can you fail and how many lessons you can learn. And exactly. I think it's definitely needed in property, but you don't want to fail too much. Um, but definitely having a, that was my big, 
uh, lesson that I learned having been screwed over. And I mean, that scheme's potentially not going to get built because of what the, the business partners did. They took money out of the schemes, like you mentioned, obviously, previously, how they draw the money out of the company. So it's a messy situation. Um, but they, uh, they're the ones going to be potentially getting prosecuted. So interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, you did the right thing. You learn your lesson. <laughs> exactly and there's nothing exactly. embarrassing about it either I, I know a lot of no. people don't want to talk about their failures but hey this is how we all learn because then we share it and then from that learning curve you're like oh okay I know what to do next time and I agree with you there's so many people in the industry if you get that gut feeling that they aren't for you whether they're trustworthy or not that's fine they're just not your person move on exactly they're just fine and that's why I'd always advise people as well if they can speak to people in the industry that may have retired or like would be a non-exec to a, to a, on the board the reason why I try and go for people like that is because they've, they've done what they've needed to do in their life whereas if you're sometimes speaking to an individual as a sort of mentor they're still actively trying to make as much money as they can in many ways um, whereas a, board, a guy that's been retired 10 years and you can speak to them and have a conversation they're not as I guess financially motivated to oh, screw you over in many ways um, mm -hmm. so I guess it's always it's always uh, it's always nice having a mix of people that you can speak to at different levels, um, but that's where I try and focus a lot of my time is trying to yeah speak to people that have actually done it and have successfully done it and retired or whatever it is. But people I guess around the world as well because you know yourself, markets are different all around all around the world. So it's uh, getting different perspectives. If is there any ideas that you can bring into UK market from Hong Kong, for example, or the Middle East? Um, so it's just speaking to people like that and uh, people. I guess they're more than happy to have a conversation with you these days, aren't they? So mm -hmm. it's uh, it's interesting. So what keeps you motivated even on the tough, day, tough days? You've had tough times and nothing's ever easy for long periods of time. It's always up and down. But what keeps you motivated when things are looking difficult? Good question. I mean, my motivation on tough days, I mean, because I, I, I guess less school, uh, very well not very early but I didn't go to college I didn't go to anything like that um, my motivation was to, to just to be one of the known as one of the best property professionals in the world and it still is motivation slightly changed last well I guess last two three years after the episodes we've obviously what happened and then uh, also losing my dad last year so motivation slightly changed um, but yeah it's been able to provide generational wealth for the family that obviously I have um, and also still be known as one of the best in the game uh, because I think having done what I've done at a younger age I think it's like well if I don't do great things then that's a disservice to me in the world and the people that I work with so yeah it's um, motivation is still to be one of the best in the game um, and I think if you know yourself if you've been recognized as one of the best best in the game prophecy then financially you should do all right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree with you. So finally, you read a lot of books and I've seen it on your Instagram profile. So which one has helped you get the most success? Good question again. Um, I do read a lot of books and I mean, there's two, probably three, two or three books, which I mean, probably, I've got, you asked for one book, so I'll give you one book. It's probably The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. Um, and I think it's by Robin Sharma, I believe it is. And it's a, an amazing book, which I guess because I was so driven on money, I was so driven on, trying to achieve and I think property you see the figures you see the appraisals and you think wow I want to I want to make this all this money but then you, your values change um and it's a book which not probably many people have heard of um and it talks about a guy who was very caught up in the had all the cars had everything that he needed to do in life um, but just wasn't satisfied and I knew being a young guy I was like actually 
do I want to get to like 30, 40, 50 and be like that? And I was like, no, I, I don't really want to be like that. So definitely a monk who sold his Ferrari. Uh, I mean, this, you've obviously got the typical ones, how to win friends and influence people. Um, but definitely I look at that. There's also a couple of books which people may have not heard of. I mean, I, I, I understand, I read quite a lot of books on endurance runners, for example. And the reason I do that is because just the pain barriers that they individuals like that have to go through, um, I guess I try and bring into the, the business space, mm-hmm. uh, the pain, sort of the pain threshold and yeah, stuff like that. So it's um, but definitely the Monk Who Sold His Ferrari is, a, is an amazing book for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to look that one up. I haven't read it, but I'm always open to new books. Jake, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. No problem at all. It's been a, yeah, a great episode and uh, you've, you've been a great host. Thank you. Thank you to everybody who's listened today. I really appreciate your support. If you've liked uh, this podcast, please make sure to rate and review it because that helps other people find it. Again, thank you for listening. I cannot wait to catch up with you again soon.